Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Marvel A to Z. I am your host, James Bianco, and the first thing I wanted to do today is just apologize for the inconsistency at which I've produced these episodes. For a little while, I wanted to do it every two weeks, but that quickly became a bit unsustainable. I want every single episode to just be exhaustively researched and well thought out, and I also want to make connections and observations that nobody else has. If what I share with you can also be heard or seen in a YouTube video or some top 10 listicle, then I don't think I'm making the best use of your time, because you're giving me a lot of it. These episodes tend to be long. I have a feeling this one's really going to be long. So I, I want to make sure the quality meets that. And... Making those unique connections and observations can be difficult given the material that we're studying because a lot of this stuff, it's been around for a long time. Millions of people at this point, I think, have read it and given their thoughts on it. So it can be daunting. And I think that that intimidation is what threw me off for a little bit. But I do feel ready to begin writing and studying again. So I'm going to kick things back off. And that leads me to another point I wanted to get to before we get to the content real quick. If you have reached out to me, whether it's in the recent months or even recent years, just know it, it's really meant a lot to me. I would read all the emails and it would make me start working on the show again for a bit until I got intimidated by my own expectations. If you reached out over email or on Twitter, just know that I really appreciate it. And I hope that I have responded to everyone who has reached out to me. It kept me interested in doing this when sometimes I would be overall intimidated by the prospect of continuing. So thank you if you've reached out or if you've left a review. Trust me, I read it and it has inspired me and it's a big part of the reason that I'm getting back that I'm getting back to it. Okay, so all that being said, I want to warn you once again, this episode will be a little bit longer. I think we're going to be talking about the Hulk after all and he's got lots of comics he's appeared in and he's been, you know, thought about and contemplated to death. Um, that being said, I am going to do this as just one long episode. I had thought for a minute to make it a two-parter, but I feel like when podcasts tend to go, you know, this will be two-parters, it's really mostly for their convenience and ease of use, if, if not to get more advertisers on the different episodes. I don't feel the need to do that. If it's too long for you to listen to all at once, that's totally fine. I think there's going to be plenty of places that you could naturally stop listening and then pick it back up when you have time. So don't feel the need to listen to it all at once. I think it's going to be just fine if you need to pause it and jump back into it later. Okay, all that being said, um, the Hulk is one of the most iconic characters in Marvel lore. And I don't say this lightly because, I mean, he is quite literally easy to recognize, even for people who don't enjoy comic-related content. And there's also something very primal about his appeal. This idea that you can become a much stronger version of yourself that is truly unstoppable. And I don't mean that just on a physical level, but I'll talk more about how he is unstoppable later. To crush your opponents and enemies. However, I think the reason he's stuck around for so long is the character goes much, much deeper than that. The very first thing that I would note for someone who may not be totally aware of Hulk comic lore would be that he actually has multiple personalities. And Moon Knight has sort of taken the center stage in the Marvel world of a hero that has multiple personalities, but Hulk did it first, and we'll be getting into that a lot later. 
Additionally, he's the product of abuse and of a broken home. And that's inspired a lot of the rage that we see the Hulk go through. And this is something else we'll be talking about. His strength, it actually surpasses just the physical realm. Planet Hulk and stories like Future Imperfect demonstrate this really well. Rest assured, we'll be talking about those too. And finally, kind of recently, they've brought Hulk back to his monstrous roots and started to dive into the spiritual realm as well. And if you don't know what I'm referring to, it's the Immortal Hulk run. It's beloved and just, it just ended pretty recently, but people do adore it. And I personally think that it's fantastic. But I can understand if someone thinks that it approaches the lore of the Hulk with too heavy a hand. Okay, so a couple more disclaimers. If you know the characters that we study on this show, then you may realize that this character will inevitably be one that we have to gloss over the most. Because Hulk has appeared in thousands upon thousands of comics, and he's had an ongoing comic, and that means published pretty much monthly, since he started. And I mean since his debut in 1962. And that doesn't even account for the one-shots, the limited series, the team-ups, and other comics that he's appeared or co-starred in. And you can dig a little more out of this character the more that you read. We're going to pull a little bit from everywhere that he shows up just to give you as much of a comprehensive evaluation of the character, um, the character traits, his drives, and his abilities as much as we possibly can. But just remember this, the nature of comics is how volatile some characters can be and the Hulk is no exception. So Philip Kennedy Johnson could change this in a month or two with his current Hulk ongoing. You know, anything we say could be what we call retconned, and it could be changed or even erased. We, we just don't know because the creators have the ultimate freedom. You know, they can change things at any time. And I know that this can be difficult for people who strive for perfection in their analysis or understanding, but comics have to be looked at this way because the characters are meant to live with us forever, so we can't retire them or expect them not to change. You know, for all I know, your grandfather could have been reading Spider-Man comics when they came out, and you could be reading them today. So how could we expect the character not to change when they need to stay perpetually around for us? And it used to be that the status quo pretty much always returned, like how things were at the beginning of the comics, they kind of always got back to that stage. So the next comic, you could just jump right back in, like a serialization type of thing. I don't think that's the case anymore. They can do really crazy things to reset the world if they want. I think about Secret Wars, where they have Doctor Doom, which we talked about in the Doctor Doom episode, but we have Doctor Doom creating a whole new universe and his likeness, and then Reed fighting for that power, and with the help of his son, Franklin Richards, and the Molecule Man, recreating the 616 universe. So imagine the craziness that you could have happen, and the characters that you could effectively kill off, if you're able to do these crazy story beats where things kind of reset. We have those now, so things are a little bit less likely to stay in the status quo. Okay, that was probably the longest intro to a show that I've ever done, but let's do what we always do, and I'll read a quotation to get started. And this quote comes from The Incredible Hulk, The End, and that's a one-shot written by Peter David and illustrated by Dale Keown in 2002. I would have died long ago of starvation were it not for his ability to ingest virtually anything and turn it into pure energy. Not since the shark has there been such a perfect engine of survival. I am the weak piston in that engine. 
So, why this quotation? Because I believe that Bruce Banner is just as important to the Hulk's character as the Hulk is. And I don't mean that in a way that's obvious, I hope. Everything that Bruce does, thinks, or believes actually influences the Hulk because Hulk is the id. So if you don't know what the id is, we'll get to that now, but famed psychologist Sigmund Freud had a theory about the way that the human psyche worked. There was the id, which was baseline, simple, aggressive, and it wants whatever it wants, so it's fueled by hunger and physical desire. It drives us to fulfill our most basic needs as quickly as possible. And the etymology for this is not that interesting, but in case you're curious, Freud wrote in German, so he called this concept das S, which means it, and that translates to the id in Latin. Um, but the next piece is the superego. The superego is the moral conscience. It tells us not to give in to the baseline desires, and the ego is the mediator in between the two. So three pieces to how the human psyche works in Freud's view. This is sort of a more in-depth theory of that devil and angel on either of your shoulders that you'll see in, you know, cartoons and stuff. So this is a dark thought, but for a lot of iterations of Hulk, his main driver is to kill Bruce Banner. He hates him. Well, guess who else wants to kill Banner? Banner does himself. So maybe that's some evidence that he's influencing what the Hulk wants. And when Banner grows and thinks he no longer deserves to die, but that others have wronged him and should be punished, the Hulk is the one who pushes him towards doing the punishing. Now, one more point before we get started on the history of the Hulk, but Hulk doesn't choose what the id wants. That's still Bruce. Hulk is just the one acting on it. So I just want to keep that in mind as we study these stories. Okay, so like many of the characters we talk about, Hulk is the product of the imagination of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Thor, Ant-Man, Black Panther, Daredevil, and many more, it's all them. Stan Lee developed the idea of the Hulk after considering Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and the fact that The Thing was by far the most popular member of the Fantastic Four. And the Fantastic Four saved Marvel Comics and kept Stan Lee in the comics industry. So we first meet Bruce Banner in The Incredible Hulk number 1. That was published in May of 1962. Okay, so we will begin with the simplest, most brief overview of the Hulk's origin as we can, and then proceed to go through things chronologically from an in-universe perspective. He is a scientist. Bruce is a scientist working on a gamma bomb with an unknown purpose. Upon seeing a teenager in the test site, he runs out to save him. So he pushes the teenager into a bunker, but the gamma bomb goes off, dousing his body with dangerous gamma rays. He survives and finds that when nightfall occurs, he is transformed into a monster they call Hulk. The reason the countdown isn't stopped is because Bruce's assistant Igor was actually a Soviet agent and wanted him to die. This comic alone leaves us with many questions and points to focus on. What are gamma rays? Well, per Oxford, penetrating electromagnetic radiation of a kind arising from the radioactive decay of atomic nuclei. This is nuclear energy so strong that when humans are exposed to it, 
It destroys and mutates our DNA, causing cancer or death. So, why did a gamma bomb create the Hulk? Well, strap yourself in. Gamma rays in the Marvel Universe are not quite what they seem. There's some evidence that they are mystical, or at least strong enough to tear holes in reality and to their unique makeup. It can open something called the Green Door, which is a bridge from our reality to the Below Place. And the Below Place is the lowest layer of all the multiverse. It's lower than hell. This is where the One Below All resides. The One Below All is the ultimate embodiment of evil and destruction. So that's the opposite of the one above all, which is creative and compassionate, and if that one made the Marvel Universe. You know, essentially it's God. When the green door opens, the one below all can use its influence to infuse with humans just a small piece of its power. When the gamma bomb went off, a green door was opened and Bruce Banner was infused with this maleficent raw power. But... Why did Bruce Banner become the Hulk? Well, it starts back as early as his grandfather that he was named after. I'm not even kidding. The original Bruce Banner was an abusive father to Brian Banner. Brian swore to never have kids so as to never bring another Banner into the world, but he fell in love with a woman named Rebecca while working on his PhD in physics. And again, Brian that we're referring to here, this is the Hulk's father, Bruce's father. So one night, Brian is working obsessively, and he closed his eyes for a moment, and he saw a glimpse of the one below all. This terrified him, and he vowed to quit researching gamma rays. So, in my opinion, this makes sense. Brian was working on gamma rays as a subject for years, most likely slowly exposing himself to the one below all. And as a product of abuse and someone who would go on to abuse his own son and wife, it's likely the hate in his heart that would open himself up to a deity so evil. So at this point, Brian was convinced he had a monster inside him, that his DNA was irreparably damaged, and those things influenced everything he did. They were always on his mind. So please take note of these points. What you believe about yourself is so much more powerful than you might think. And I'm not even talking about the placebo effect. I'm talking about cases like in 1992, the Southern Medical Journal described a case of a man diagnosed with liver cancer and given just months to live. After his death, an autopsy showed that his tumor had not grown or spread. The doctor wrote, Could it be that instead of the cancer, it was his expectation of death that killed him? And this is the real world, just so you know. This is something that was published in the 90s from a research journal. This is not Marvel. But on the inverse, sometimes patients can have a very keen sense of their own wellness. They go so far as to disagree with doctors' predictions of their survival rates with stunning accuracy. And so perhaps, given the metaphysical and spiritual force that haunted him, Brian destroyed his DNA and condemned his son to a lifetime of potential monstrosity. Okay, so back to Brian. When Brian and Rebecca became pregnant with Bruce, Brian was distraught. He abused Banner during his childhood, especially when he displayed signs of intelligence, which Brian took as confirmation that he was a monster. He actually ended up killing Rebecca in front of Bruce, but he didn't go to jail for it until years later. The damage to Bruce's molecular structure and psyche was done. When that green door opened, the Hulk was inevitable. So, 
Real quick, I have to admit that this is the crazy sort of state that comics are in right now. 60 years ago, you could have said, the Hulk is the product of a scientific experiment that doused his body with incredible radiation. And that would be it, and that would be good enough. But now that the Marvel Universe is so developed, I think it's necessary to take it a step farther, or you're just leaving out a lot of detail. Is this good or bad? Well, I think it's necessary. If we're going to stay in one quote-unquote sandbox for such a long time, then inevitably things are going to get more convoluted. And I think I've said this before, but we even have to be somewhat forgiving of what may feel like needless complexity or even inconsistencies. There are a lot of writers and artists in this world, and they're contributing to a universe that we all care about. So let's just allow for retcons and other things that help to make the fibers that tie the world together stronger. Now that we've discussed the origin, let's ask ourselves, what is the Hulk capable of? This is the final question we'll ask ourselves without getting started on the life and times of Bruce Banner. But what can the Hulk actually do? Well, his inspiration in part came from a story that Jack Kirby had heard regarding a woman who was able to lift a car off of her child due to being fueled by adrenaline and emotional distress. Despite the simplicity of this tale, this piece has been a driving factor in determining the Hulk's abilities for about 60 years. How mad is he? The angrier he gets, the stronger he gets. This is one of the most basic tenets of the Hulk's power set, and it's said a million times you know, throughout his career in comics. But the question is, how strong can he get? We can actually refer to in-universe experts of the cosmic variety, like the Beyonder, or scientific types like the Mad Thinker, who both say that the strength of the Hulk is actually limitless. He is classified as an Omega-level threat and the strongest humanoid in the Marvel Universe. He can leap great distances and he could actually fly in some of his earlier comics. And this is probably a good time to discuss some inconsistencies with the character that go back to the beginning. In his very first issue, Hulk was gray. Stanley chose this color because he didn't want to use a color that could possibly be construed as directed at one particular ethnicity. Uh, the inker said there could be problems with printing in gray consistently, and he was right. He appeared a different shade of gray in every panel that he showed up in. Now, you know me, I have to have an in-universe explanation for this change, and thankfully, we have one. While the gamma affected him quickly, it needed time to spread throughout his entire body, resulting in the Green Hulk we all know. So, they did change him to green shortly after. And you may have been waiting for this call-out since my initial summary of the first issue of Hulk, but the Hulk used to transform at night, much like a werewolf, and this leaned into the horror origins. But if we can fast forward a moment to 18 years in the future, Silver Surfer, of all people, actually explains why. So he's asked for help to build a gamma machine to make him stronger, so he can break out of the barrier that Galactus has placed keeping him on Earth. And he's talking to Bruce and he says, The night wanes, Dr. Banner. Gamma activity in the heavens is at its peak. So this could be due to a change in the atmosphere, due to the lack of sunlight or any other thing, but there are naturally occurring gamma rays in space and they're more present at night, so it does check out. Continuing with the weird kind of inconsistencies that were in the earlier comics, he actually uses a machine that detransforms and retransforms him as needed in the first few issues, but 
it goes wrong. In fact, in The Incredible Hulk number six, the machine successfully transforms him into the Hulk, but his head remains looking exactly the same. Then, in that same comic, he's knocked out by the Metal Master, one of those classic villains, an alien who can control metal, and when the army comes to arrest him, they realize he's wearing a mask, and they take it off, but his face had transformed by then, so it was the Hulk. So I'm sure that was a confusing day for them, and I imagine that those soldiers probably assume that Hulk is permanently wearing a mask that looks exactly like himself, just from that point on. Anyway, overuse of the machine makes it so that his transformations are at random, and he's less in control of himself until finally, during his stories published in Tales to Astonish, it's just adrenaline that determines when he transforms. Also, intelligence levels. Early on, but for a while, as the Hulk, he has a sort of brutish, rude manner of speaking, but he still does speak in full sentences. His personality changes a bit, but he still retains some scientific genius. So he gets more brutish and rude, and he's very proud of his strength, which is unlike Banner, but again, he retains a lot of his smarts. But in that same Tales to Astonish era, around 1965, they slowly phase out Hulk speaking in full sentences into being in a more permanent, childlike state. Now, since Hulk has so much content out there to study, we're going to take a biographical approach. But I don't think the dates of these stories' publication will matter much until we get past his first appearance. We've already established that Bruce was abused by his father as a child. He watched his father kill his mother, but his father threatened him, so Bruce had to lie in court and say that Brian had never hurt either of them. Later on, Brian went to jail when he admitted to this crime while drunk. When he got out some years later, Bruce reluctantly allowed him to live with him, and one day while Brian was beating Bruce at Rebecca's grave, Bruce kicked him from the ground, Brian fell over, and he broke his neck on Rebecca's tombstone. Bruce didn't know that he killed his father until years later. He thought muggers had killed him. Now this is evidence that Bruce had multiple personalities since a very young age, and the Hulk persona is only one of them, and a product of the damage, not the cause of the damage. So despite these obstacles, Bruce is undeniably gifted, and he studies physics at the most prestigious universities, even attending conferences with the likes of Tony Stark at Oxford University. It's in this comic, Indestructible Hulk Annual Number 1, published in 2013, written by Jeff Parker and illustrated by Mahmoud Asar, that he tells Iron Man that he was working in Gamma because he wanted to harness it to create clean energy. Uh, I also wanted to talk about how pragmatic of an approach this is, and it could be because I did way too much research on physics to write a podcast episode on a comic book character who turns into a giant monster, but nuclear fusion appears to be the most pragmatic way of achieving renewable clean energy. Basically, scientists in this field need to find a way to start a fusion reaction that produces more energy than it takes to start. This could be a source of energy that doesn't cause pollution like burning fossil fuels. The problem is, the cost up front to cover it is gigantic, to say the very least. The U.S. government puts hundreds of millions of dollars into funding towards it every year, and we're still multiple decades off from achieving it in any meaningful way, despite its obvious benefits. So, that being said, there was no funding for this expensive research, so he had to transform it into a weapon to get the government funds needed to continue his research. 
working for the United States Department of Defense on a military base in the deserts of New Mexico, reporting to General Thaddeus E. Thunderbolt Ross, is where we first meet the Hulk. This is also, of course, where the story of the Hulk truly begins. So, real quick aside, this is also one of the reasons that as we dig into these deeply iconic and recognizable characters, we have to be brief and leave some periods untouched. There's just so much content to review in the narrative history of a character like the Hulk. And I do think that going over the history can be more interesting than just listing off his greatest foes or different personalities, even though that sort of thing is inevitable sometimes. But at the very least, we can break down the eras of the Hulk, uh, one at a time, and then touch on the most well-known and then what I think are the most interesting stories. In the first era of the Hulk, which I'm going to call just the Incredible Hulk, the original Incredible Hulk run, issues one through six that started in 1962. It's in this first run we get to watch the Hulk first come to life and learn a few of the basic things that define him. In these first issues, Hulk is a bit destructive, but not mindless. Due to his grotesque form, he's quickly attacked by the military and fights back, which leads to him being considered a villain publicly and someone that has to be captured. Well, who should be up to the task but Bruce Banner's boss, General Thunderbolt Ross? Also, in his first run, we get an idea of the relationship between Betty and Bruce. They meet the same day of the gamma bomb test and quickly develop a chemistry, much to the disapproval of Ross, who sees Bruce as a weakling. During one intense run-in after the Hulk scared Betty inadvertently, Ross consoles her, saying, I'll find him, Betty. I swear to you, my child, I'll find him and destroy him. If it takes an eternity, I'll find that monster. And that pretty much stays Ross's driving principle during much of the Hulk's life well into the modern era. Another very important player in the life of the Hulk is Rick Jones, the teenager that Bruce saved. He's the only one who knows Hulk's identity in these early issues and assists him in many, many different situations. Together, they build a secret lab in a cave where they construct machines and even a holding cell for Hulk. I won't explain Rick Jones for a moment, but at the end of the day, he could easily get an entire podcast episode to himself. This was his first appearance, and his first role was indeed Hulk's help, and more importantly, his human connection. During the years that no one else knew what Banner was going through, Rick Jones was right by his side. Rick was also a member of the Teen Brigade, who incidentally helped the Avengers to form, and later still, he would replace Bucky many, many years before Bucky was resurrected, as Cap's partner. And he plays key roles in many important Hulk stories. Okay, so back to those first six issues. Hulk fights aliens, like the Toadmen, who actually capture Bruce for his scientific mind, but must contend with the Hulk. And aliens like the Metal Master, who has the powers of Magneto, essentially. And he fights Russians, masquerading as aliens to draw him out. However, in Hulk number 5, he is forced by Tyrannus, the ruler of the underground world, drinker of the Fountain of Youth, to become a gladiator. And this foreshadows a very well-known modern Hulk story that we'll touch on later. My overall take on that first run of Hulk. In hindsight, I think this is a fun run, and it seems to be in line with the other stuff that Lee and Kirby developed throughout this era. However, there's a reason that it was cancelled after a year and a half. Despite what we know about Hulk's rise to stardom and what it would be, there were a lot of inconsistencies going on in the span of six issues, which probably created a character it was hard to sympathize or even relate to. 
At first, he's lumbering around and brutish. A few issues later, he's flying. Then he has the intellect of Bruce, but is crueler in Hulk form. And later still, he becomes docile and does whatever Rick Jones commands him to in like a hypnotized state until Rick Jones falls asleep and then he goes crazy. So how can fans get attached to or invested in a character when they don't know who the character is? Maybe comics in this medium were more so about the ideas that they featured and the characters you know, and less about the finer aspects of the character. I think this is why comics were a little bit repetitive back then. A lot of the same, oh, you know, Iron Man is Tony Stark's bodyguard, and how does he manage that? And Peter Parker is the secret identity of Spider-Man, and oh, we're this close to finding out for multiple years. I just think things were a little bit more repetitive in the Silver Age of comics, and I'm not complaining about it because I read a lot of them, but in hindsight, there's a lot more in-depth stories you could get into these days. Okay, so after that six-issue run, he appeared in a few random books that were non-Hulk stories. He tangled with the Fantastic Four as early as Fantastic Four issue number 12. General Ross recruits them to help find and capture the Hulk after a project was torn to shreds that he thinks only the Hulk could accomplish. So they're hyped up, and they're each planning how they're going to take him on. And this is the first time that Banner and Reed meet, which is sort of interesting to observe. They're both fans of one another's research, which is a neat detail. The Fantastic Four, of course, come to blows with the Hulk. He starts taking them all out, but someone shoots the Hulk with a ray from below. When the Thing goes to investigate the Hulk and escapes, they find the Wrecker there. So, one dynamic I love thinking about, probably too much because I'm a fan of the Fantastic Four, is how Reed and Banner get along so well, as do the Thing and Hulk. That doesn't mean the pair don't do battle regularly, because they do. But I am going to take a little bit of time to dig into these two as a pair, the Hulk and the Thing, because I think it tells us a lot about the Hulk's personality. There's a miniseries called Hulk and Thing Hard Knocks, published in 2004, written by Bruce Jones and drawn by Jai Lee. In this miniseries, Hulk and the Thing talk about the old days. Specifically, they talk about their first meetup in Fantastic Four 12. So, later that night... After the events of Fantastic Four 12 go down, Ben is struggling with accepting his still new lot in life. That he had been transformed into a creature that he doesn't recognize, but he doesn't accept that he's a monster, and he refuses to. So he goes out into the New Mexico desert and searches for Hulk to find the only target he can think of that could stand his aggression. They fight. Hulk is still suffering from the effects of the Wrecker's Ray, and when he's on the ground in front of Hulk, he does what Ben calls the most extraordinary thing. He changes into Banner. So I'll read this portion of Ben's uh, speech right here. For the first time in front of somebody, you changed back into Banner. No one knew the facts about you back then, that you and Hulk were the same. I couldn't believe it. I was stunned. There was a human being beneath that lump of steroids. But was it a man or a monster? What makes a monster? That creep staring back in the mirror or the person inside? That was the moment I learned a great truth. Inside, I was still human. This is probably the most important takeaway of all, and it speaks a lot to Hulk's entire purpose. He's a man stuck inside a monster, but as long as there is just a piece of humanity remaining, not all hope is lost. 
The Thing is obsessed with returning to his human form during this era. It's his only motivation to press on, and it's huge that seeing this transformation would influence him. Because, because of this, basically, he has a soft spot for the Hulk. I think it's because he's afraid that he would be in Hulk's position if not for his family. He has a temper himself, after all. This special sympathy results in some truly character-driven moments between the two heavy hitters, such as in Immortal Hulk 41, written by Al Ewing and drawn by Joe Bennett, published in 2020. Okay, quick warning, I know this is getting far out of place in the timeline, since this is the second to most recent Hulk run, but I want to finish the Thing slash Hulk observations while we're still discussing it. The Thing is sent to contain the Hulk from a pier in New York, but he unexpectedly reverts to Banner's form and they have a conversation. Turns out this is Grey Hulk, Joe Fixit, one of Banner's many personalities, taken over Banner's form. So they have a conversation where Ben says after he died and came back, he began going to Temple again, being a Jewish man, and he would read the story of Job. When bad things happen to Job in the Bible and he demands answers, he doesn't receive them. Instead, he just gets a glimpse of how much he doesn't know. The thing took the meaning of the story to be that he must be doing pretty well since nothing else terrible was happening to him, so it's not like he was Job, but in hindsight, maybe he should have been looking out for someone who was, like Banner. When they end the conversation, Ben says, hey, grab a shirt off the rack, will you, Hulk? I'm buying. Joe smiles, and Ben asks him, why? Joe says, you keep calling me Hulk, to which Ben responds, so, that's who you are, ain't it? Ben is the only one who knows that Hulk is more than the monster, because Ben is still a man deep down, so he'll never see himself as a monster, so he won't see the Hulk that way either. Okay, that'll end the Hulk and thing analysis piece, but I think that old Fantastic Four story where they first meet is really worth the read. Definitely check it out if it sounds like something that would interest you. So we've covered the Hulk's first six-issue run and his appearance in FF. Where does he show up next? The answer may surprise you. How about Avengers number one, published in September 1963, written by Stan and Jack? Despite being such a landmark issue, it's actually not too complex of a story. Loki wants to fight Thor, but he's exiled by Odin, so he uses his projection powers to view the Earth, and he finds Thor and his alter ego, Donald Blake. I'm gonna go on a totally random aside real quick. Some folks don't know, but Thor also had an alter ego in these early comics. He was a physician named Donald Blake with a cane, and when he slammed the cane to the floor, it would become Mjolnir and he would become Thor. Thor's movies obviously don't make use of this plot device, but in Thor 1, I believe Jane Foster gives him some clothes to wear and there's an old name tag on the shirt that says Donald Blake, so that's a cool reference. Loki looks for a threat, that will get Thor to become Thor, and he finds the Hulk and casts a mental projection of a bomb on some train tracks near him. Hulk crashes into it to try and get rid of it, but he busts the tracks. Then he lifts the tracks himself so the coming train isn't damaged, but some people saw it, and they thought it was Hulk trying to take out a train. The teen brigade, led by Rick Jones, attempt to contact the FF using their two-way radio device. Loki sees this and uses his powers to divert the broadcast away from the Fantastic Four and to Donald Blake, aka on Thor's personal radio. In the process, he sends the radio message to the other founding Avengers, accidentally. 
well, they tussle, and they eventually find out Loki was the cause of the plot, and they agree to team up, the Hulk mostly joining so he won't be hounded by them anymore. So what does Hulk joining the Avengers tell us about Hulk at this stage? Well, I think it backs up the theory of Doc Samson. So who's Doc Samson? Doc Samson is a psychiatrist who first appeared in The Incredible Hulk Volume 2, Issue 141, published in 1971. It was written by Roy Thomas, who I feel like we talk about every episode, and illustrated by Herb Trimpe. In his first appearance, he invents a device that siphons gamma energy from the Hulk, and he uses it to free Betty from a crystal prison that she's been stuck in. It works, but later that night, out of curiosity, he douses himself with some of it, and suddenly he's just a huge, muscular guy, his hair is much longer, and his hair is green as well. He actually cures the Hulk in doing this, but Betty and Doc start to hang out too much for Bruce's liking, and Bruce goes and turns himself back into the Hulk again. Easy come, easy go. I think it's fair to say that the Hulk being willing to join the team that hunted him is a sort of compromise, and the main Hulk persona isn't known for compromising, he is the id after all. However, the ego, which is in between, just might. And Doc Samson's analysis is that the Grey Hulk, or Joe Fixit, is the ego in between Bruce the superego and Hulk the id. This makes sense just considering the intelligence, Grey Hulk retains some of Bruce's smarts and ability to plan, but he's also self-serving like the Hulk is. Additionally, Doc supposed that in those first few years as Hulk, despite being green, the Grey Hulk was doing more of the controlling as the primary Hulk persona slowly got stronger and took over, hence his regression into not speaking in full sentences or retaining Bruce's scientific smarts as he did at first. Perhaps joining the Avengers was the decision the Grey Hulk spearheaded. Maybe he saw it as a way to counter some of the inevitable attacks that he would be on the receiving end of. What's the result? Well, the result is it doesn't last long. As early as issue number three of the Avengers, the Avengers are tracking Hulk down as a form of damage control to ensure he doesn't do anything to make them look bad. By issue four, he's been replaced by Captain America after they dig him up from the ice. What happens next? Well, we've gone over Hulk's first six issue run and a few guest appearances he made, but what did the Hulk do? Or more accurately, what book did he do what in for the next few years? Well, he shared tales to astonish with Ant-Man slash Giant-Man. From 1964 to 1968, Hulk adventures in this book. And I want to take a moment here to point out one area of concern that I do have with Marvel Comics as a whole. And it takes a lot for me to make this point because I tend to focus on the positives, of which there are many, but I think this bears being said. Many times we see these spurts of creative genius come out, and then very quickly future writers and artists just dig and dig from those wells for so many years. So I want to paint this picture more vividly by sharing some simple facts. In Spider-Man's first 15 issues, these villains appear. Chameleon, Vulture, Doc Ock, Sandman, Electro, Mysterio, Green Goblin, Craven the Hunter, and Scorpion. X-Men's first 15 issues include these villains, Magneto, The Blob, The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, don't forget this includes the first appearance of both Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, Juggernaut, and Sentinels. And then one final one just to drive the point home, I think, the first 15 Fantastic Four issues include them going up against Mole Man, Scrolls, Puppet Master, The Mad Thinker, and of course, 
Doctor Doom in number two. What's my point? So many of the most iconic and well-known villains that a hero has come in their first year or so of existing. And with these characters having been around for 60 plus years, isn't it statistically unlikely that's the case? Or is it perfectly logical as people take less and less risk as the property gains popularity and success? There are exceptions to this. Spider-Man has some great villains coming out of the modern age like Venom, Carnage, and Mr. Negative. More recently, creators have been getting better and better at creating threats who will go up against the entirety of the Marvel Universe's heroes. For instance, Null, Thanos, and the Black Order have certainly seen a resurgence of popularity, the Black Winter, and so on. Anyway, the Hulk isn't really an exception to this problem. The unique point with the Hulk is perhaps that he doesn't have the most impressive rogues gallery to begin with. In those early Tales to Astonish issues, we meet some of his most iconic, or in my opinion, best villains. General Thunderbolt Ross in Hulk number one, Circus of Crime in Hulk number three, the leader appears in Tales to Astonish 62, published in 1964, an Abomination appears in Tales to Astonish 90, published in 1967. I think more people are a little familiar with Abomination since he was in the 2008 film with Edward Norton and returned in the She-Hulk Disney Plus series. In the comics though, he's a foreign spy who exposes himself to more of the gamma radiation that created the Hulk, making him stronger and bigger than the Hulk. He beats Hulk in their first fight in fact. But the more interesting villain here is the leader. And I'm not sure how many people know who he is since he hasn't been properly adapted as a major villain in a film. Born Samuel Stearns, he was a brutish, strong, unskilled laborer that was working near a chemical research plant when it exploded. He was doused with gamma rays but somehow survived. In the hospital where he recovered, he developed a voracious appetite for knowledge, reading every book he could get his hands on. Sometime later still, he was obsessed with learning more and more. He became unconscious on his library's floor. When he awoke, he had developed green skin and a gigantic cranium. That's when he decided the leader was a more fitting name. Using his intelligence, he quickly assembled a vast spy ring, attempting to take over the reins of the government, as he explains in his first appearance. So, why do I think he's such a great villain for the Hulk? Arguably better than Abomination. Because he's the opposite. Bruce Banner was a highly intelligent, feeble man, sometimes referred to as a 98-pound weakling. That's a small size for a grown man. Gamma rays made him the strongest, biggest, and arguably stupidest there is. Samuel Stearns was a below-average, unskilled laborer, never even finished high school, but worked with his hands and used his muscles every day. Gamma rays made him one of the smartest people in the Marvel Universe. What can this tell us about gamma rays? Perhaps, if you have the genetic makeup to make use of them and not die, they give you what you really want or have wanted. So, consider the following. Bruce is a scientist, but what did he really want when he was a young child abused by his father, watching his mother be beaten to death by his father? He wanted the strength to make it stop. Samuel Stearns never finished high school, but more importantly, they specify he worked a physically demanding job. Maybe it was underlying, but what would he probably want instead? A nice job sitting down, using his brain. 
This goes on. Jenner Thunderbolt Ross hulks out, and he becomes the Red Hulk. Well, he's a soldier, and red is a color that has all sorts of aggressive connotations. He wanted to be a warrior. Jennifer Walters was very studious. She's a lawyer, after all. As a child, she wanted to be a dancer, but her father didn't approve. What happens when she hulks out? She gets exaggerated feminine features that are typically seen as physically desirable. Green, sure, but the She-Hulk has smooth skin and long legs and long flowing hair, etc. So, that to me is worth considering when it comes to how gamma rays work in the Marvel Universe. But there's one other aspect to Stern's that makes him so compelling. Stern is not the Hulk but evil. If anything, he's the Hulk in reverse. These sorts of villains are so much more compelling to me than when the villain is evil version of hero. I think of like General Zod in Man of Steel, if I can make a DC reference, or Agatha in WandaVision, she's like an evil Wanda, the Flag Busters in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they're evil super soldiers, or the group in Miss Marvel who can also summon energy to form weapons to use on each other. This stuff feels uninspired to me, and when I think of the great comic book villains over the years, it's usually someone that doesn't sound like a natural enemy to our hero right off the bat. Doctor Doom and Mr. Fantastic, there's a perfect dynamic between them. It's been explored for 60 years, and it's still going strong. And while they both have super intelligence, Doctor Doom is a sorcerer, and Reed doesn't even believe in magic. Spider-Man and Green Goblin, or arguably Doc Ock, I don't even know what to say about that. There's no obvious connection there. Magneto and the X-Men, yes, they're all mutants, but his power doesn't necessarily speak to any of the other members' abilities with much specification. Ah, uh, Kang and the Avengers, what a fun combo that is. A futurist, a time traveler against, you know, a huge variety of powers. Anyway, I could go on and on regarding this point, but I think I've made my intentions pretty clear. I don't want to see a hero fight an evil version of themselves. I want the battles and storyline to be full of chaos and spectacle, and you need things to not fit too neatly together to allow for that to happen. Okay, so what else happens in Tales to Astonish? Much of his time is spent simply evading Thunderbolt Ross and another core character who works for Ross, Major Glenn Talbot. Truly, this is where a majority of the stories take place. Bruce is on the run, attempting to hide a secret identity from everyone but Rick Jones. Um, Rick does give in a few times and tell people Hulk's identity. The president, when he thinks that it's the only way to get Hulk out of trouble, Rick Jones goes to the president and tells him. Betty Ross and Major Talbot, when he believes that the Hulk has died, he wasn't dead, but he was sent to the distant future by a gun he had designed. Then, Hulk Volume 1 continues in 1968. It was around this time that Tells to Astonish they stopped publishing Hulk stories, and so they gave Hulk his own run again, picking up at issue number 102. This is a time period of serialization for the Hulk. It was also during this time that the Hulk TV show aired, so maybe they leaned even more into the serialization style by the late 70s. Many of the comics felt self-contained, and there wasn't always one thing connecting an issue to the next. Maybe he wakes up on a snowy mountain and falls into a cavern where he fights Jack Frost, but the next issue, we center on a Hulk in a quiet farm area with such a serene spirit it turns him into Banner and he creates a life for himself there. You never know what you're going to get in these comics, and that's actually the reason I would recommend jumping into Hulk Volume 1 if you don't know where to begin, but you want to begin reading Hulk Vintage Comics. 
And of course, with it being a long-term volume one, you find a lot of fundamental stuff about Hulk in this run. His first time meeting many important villains and other heroes are in here, but there's absolutely highlights you should know about just to fully understand Hulk's history. Before we get into those though, I want to note that in the early 70s, it was also around the time that Hulk joined the Defenders. This is a team with a constantly changing roster, no headquarters, no formal roles, and it's bound together by pure necessity. Doctor Strange started it when he simply needed the Hulk and Namor working with him to take down a threat, and they most definitely did not get along. Silver Surfer joined as well, that was kind of the group that Hulk was a part of, but I don't think those stories were super fundamental to who Hulk is, so let's get to the highlights of Hulk Volume 1 now. Jarella first appears in issue 140. This was published in 1971, and she's the princess of a subatomic world called Kai. Hulk is shrunken by one of his enemies to a subatomic level when he shows up in this less-than-miniature world. He meets these huge, gigantic boars that are attacking a seemingly medieval kingdom, and he saves them. They come running out after he's defeated the monsters, and he prepares for a fight but the people are, of course, cheering him on. He quickly meets their queen, Jarella, who declares she'll be marrying him. She does this before they even utter a sentence the other can understand, because Hulk isn't speaking the same language as them. And there are some major reasons that this relationship means so much to Hulk. First, when they first meet her, um, scientists and sorcerers cast a spell to allow Hulk to learn their language so they can communicate. But upon completion of that spell, he has Banner's mind in Hulk's body, and he's loving it. Secondly, she doesn't attempt to prevent Hulk from doing what he does best. On the contrary, she asks him to use his strength and rage to protect people. At one point, as he adjusts to life in this new faraway kingdom, he says to himself slash Betty as he stares at an alien night sky, Betty, you know what I'm doing. The only thing I can do, what I'd want you to do in my place, you don't need me any longer, these people do. And that's something new for this green-skinned galoot, even for Bruce Banner, being needed. This is how you deal with an immature person who lacks emotional regulation, have them pour their energy into something productive. And thirdly, she loves him unconditionally. She knows his Bruce and Hulk forms, she enjoys the company of both, and she has seen him at his highs and lows. So Hulk is madly in love with Jarella, but the villain that shrunk him to this world, Cyclop, does come and take him back to the real world by the end of the issue. But Hulk never forgets about Jarella. Now based on this story, and perhaps the most well-known iteration of the Hulk being the one in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you may come away with the belief that only true love can soothe the beast that is the Hulk. This is not the case, and I want to point to a couple of obscure issues to prove that. In issue 177, which was published in 1974, a few years later, written by Gary Conway and Roy Thomas, and drawn by Herb Trimpe, Hulk arrives on Counter-Earth. So he finds himself locked in the Inhuman space arc, traveling a long, long way from Earth, and he crashes on Counter-Earth. I need to go on a slight unrelated to Hulk rant here to discuss what Counter-Earth is or was in the early 70s of Marvel. If you've seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, you may have an idea of what to expect as they show Counter-Earth in the film. It gets some stuff wrong, 
it gets some stuff right if you compare it to the comics, but we're focused on the comic lore right now. The High Evolutionary is traditionally a Fantastic Four villain. Once a genius scientist named Herbert Edgar Wyndham, who became obsessed with experimental biology, genetic manipulation, and evolving the human race. He created Counter-Earth on the opposite side of our sun. It was meant to be a world without malice or sin. But as he was in the process of creating it, one of his former creations, Man-Beast, who's like a hybrid of a wolf and a man, came and infected the world with evil, and then went down to wreak havoc after it was built. Through pure chance, Adam Warlock showed up floating aimlessly through space in a state of rebirth. Adam Warlock, also originally a Fantastic Four supporting character named Him, was actually created by scientists on Earth and was meant to be the next step in human evolution. However, upon his birth, he instantly recognized that his creators intended to use him for nefarious means, he destroyed them, and fled the scene. The High Evolutionary gifted him the Soul Stone for extra strength and sent him down to Counter-Earth to act as its lone hero. It is on the Counter-Earth that Hulk arrives. But before we get back to it, I want to explain something important about Adam Warlock at this time. Despite being Counter-Earth's lone hero and spending much of his time philosophizing about the nature of good and evil and what he should do versus what he must do, Adam acts a little bit like a child. He's still figuring out a lot, and short of killing his creators because he thinks that they may misuse his powers, there's only one real notable thing he does before meeting the High Evolutionary. He sees Thor and Lady Sif, and he tries to physically abduct Lady Sif to become his wife. He thinks she's beautiful, and that's all the logic that he needs to try to take what he wants. Who does this remind you of? In a way, the Adam Warlock of this era is a bit childish, but more importantly, for all of his flaws, the Adam Warlock of this era is authentic. He is not attempting to outsmart anyone with his motives, he wears his heart on his sleeve. This is something we know the Hulk values. Getting back to the story, Hulk immediately comes to blows with the powers that be on this world, secretly controlled by the evil man-beast, and finally meets up with Adam where they exchange greetings. And I'm going to try and read this dialogue back and forth so that you have an understanding of how they interact with one another. Hulk says, Warlock, Hulk has heard of you, but Hulk can't remember where. We've heard of each other, Hulk. In a way, you saved my life. Your battle with man-beast aids distracted my captors long enough for the recorder to release me from the stasis capsule where I've been held prisoner. Hulk says, Hulk doesn't know about that, but something about you, Hulk likes. Warlock says, I take that as a very high compliment, my friend. As they talk, Warlock explains the need for a revolution against the ones in power and their plans to execute it. Hulk responds as you might expect. Revolution, Hulk doesn't understand. Few people do understand that word, my friend. For some men, revolution means violence. For others, a quiet change in the social order. So listen to this guy, not judging Hulk, and not just humoring him either, but finding actual value to Hulk's conversational contributions. So it's no wonder that Hulk's intuition told him he could trust someone like Warlock. Hulk stays with Warlock and his team, he befriends them, shares food with them, and they become a true team. Man-Beast shows up with a device that turns Hulk to his human form and captures Adam Warlock and then schedules a public execution. I don't want to get too far off topic here, 
But this comic may be one of the earliest examples of a biblical analogy in Marvel Comics that I know of. Firstly, his name being Adam is spot on for the first man as he was intended to supplant the human race, but as Warlock is the captive in front of a raging crowd, the government official in charge says the following. What shall be done of this man, this arrogant alien who sought to make himself a king? Shall we give him to the courts so they can set him free? Or will we take justice into our own hands? The decision is yours, freedom or death for Adam Warlock. Then, the literally brainwashed crowd chants death. So be it, my hands are clean. This day, the warlock dies. Now, I want to change gears and talk about an actual biblical story for a second. In Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, the religious leaders who want Jesus dead take him to the Roman governor, who will have the authority to order an execution. He too asks the crowd what they would prefer, and when they chant for the death of Jesus, he asks for some water, and he washes his hands, and he says, I am innocent of the blood of this person, see ye to it. When Jesus was being crucified, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Waves begin to flow over Adam, getting back to the story, at this point, and he experiences what is described as an eternity of pain in seconds, and then he says, High evolutionary, why have you abandoned me? And he dies. Thankfully, seeing the death of his only friend on this strange planet is enough for Bruce to become the Hulk once again. He's able to capture the coffin or cocoon, that's what some folks call it in the Marvel Universe, that... Adam gets sent to when he dies, and then he gets away with it, so he escapes. However, as time passes and the man-beast prepares now to launch a full-scale assault on Counter-Earth and First Earth, the Hulk and Warlock's remaining compatriots launch a final, last-minute attack. The fighting is underway when Adam himself shows up, resurrected of course, and announces, it is the time of judgment. Then he uses his newfound power to revert the beast back to their natural form, changing man-beast into a simple wolf. Then, one of his followers says, Adam, you've won. Mankind has won. And he responds, No, he will remain thus only as long as man recognizes the beast within himself. Should man forget, should man fail to recognize and combat the evil within himself with the intellect he has been given, the man-beast shall live again. He goes on to say that he'll be traveling to other worlds with his newfound knowledge, but that he'll be among Counter-Earth's people whenever they think of him. Then, the narrator explains as Warlock disappears into the atmosphere. This is Warlock's time of passing. He leaves the gathered with an unvoiced question, a question once asked by Ray Bradbury in a poem too few people know. Are there mangers on far worlds? This is Warlock's time of passing, a time of sadness for those who knew him here, a time of celebration for those who will know him in the eons to come. The Hulk thinks about Warlock's words. He is strangely at peace with himself, and that is good. First things first. The line, Are there mangers on far worlds, comes from Ray Bradbury's poem, Christus Apollo. The meaning of the poem is open to interpretation. It's very long, or I would read it, but in my view, it talks about how space travel or alien civilizations would not change Christ's relationship to humanity. So it's really just sealing the deal regarding who Adam is to counter-Earth, a savior, messiah figure. Also, 
there are a few key words that are bolded in this passage. So let me call those out. I'm going to read a piece of it again and really emphasize the one or two words that are bolded. The Hulk thinks about Warlock's words. He is strangely at peace with himself, and that is good. So the Hulk is thinking, he's at peace, and this is a good thing. That is the real takeaway from this story. So, why did I share the details of this random, obscure run of just a few issues from the 70s? Because it shows what it takes for Hulk to become a productive member of a society or group. Again, that is utility. Does he feel that his strength, which he takes much pride in, is being used? Purpose. Is it being used for a good cause? Usually, with this iteration of the Hulk, it's actually the protection of others. And finally, authenticity. Are the people around him authentic with their intentions, or are they trying to outsmart him or trick him? Um, authenticity, the ability to be real and forward with your actions and decisions, is probably the most important trait that you can have. Whether you're the smartest person in the room or not doesn't really matter as long as you are honest with your thoughts and rationale when you deal with other people. Because you can have honest disagreements and work them out, and you can even land in a different place on an important issue, but agree that both of you are coming from different perspectives that aren't going to budge, and that's okay. Hulk is not like anyone else in the Marvel Universe, but when other people are up front with him, he can at times get along. Okay, moving on from Adam Warlock to another arc that came shortly after was in issues 180 through 181 published in 1974, written by Lynn Wine and Herb Trempe. Hulk is in the wilderness, actually sparring with the Wendigo, a yeti-like monster in the Marvel Universe, when the government deploys a new weapon. And lo and behold, who should show up but a short, snarling man with adamantium claws called Wolverine. To be fair, he holds his own against Hulk, but doesn't defeat him in the end. And this was the very first appearance of Wolverine. If you didn't know, his first appearance was indeed in a Hulk comic. Um, so if you're a fan of X-Men or of Wolverine specifically, I highly recommend that you check that one out. This is issue 181, where he first properly shows up. Okay, I'm going to transition to another era of Hulk. Bill Mantlo wrote the book for a number of years, covering lots of development regarding Bruce's ability to control himself when he's in Hulk form. Then Peter David took over Hulk in 1987, and he wrote until 1998. A lot of people consider this the golden standard for a Hulk ongoing. He worked with a number of artists, but one noteworthy creator on the series was Todd McFarlane, creator of Spawn, founder of Image Comics, and famed Spider-Man artist. He really poured a lot of time and energy into making sense of the multiple personalities lurking within Hulk, he gave us Grey Hulk most notably, but other important moments too. I'm going to get into these personalities and spinoffs in a minute, because arguably his focus on the multiple personalities of Hulk, that was always the highlight of this run. To the point where being forced to do the concept what he felt was a disservice is why he ended up leaving the book after a legendary run. So I'm going to read the following explanation word for word from Peter David. And it's a little long, but bear with me. I actually didn't know I was going to be leaving the Incredible Hulk when I did go. What happened was that my editor at the time, Bobby Chase, also now at DC, go figure, had suggested when we were kicking around future plot directions that I kill off the Hulk's wife, Betty Banner. 
Betty had always been my wife's favorite character, and because of that, I'd always sworn nothing bad would happen to her. But then my wife left me so that she could go off and do other things, I don't know, not be married to me. On that basis, Betty's safety measure was gone. When Bobby suggested we plug her, I said, sure, why not, so I killed her off. This got Marvel all excited. See, when I started the book and, over years, doubled sales on it, it caused people to suddenly start paying attention. With the death of Betty, this prompted Marvel to have a brilliant idea. Mourning the loss of his wife, the Hulk would now go dead silent, stop talking to anyone, and run around the Marvel Universe smashing everything in sight. When I was told the new plan, I objected. I told them it was out of character, the psychologically complex giant I'd created over the years. I said I couldn't write that, and the editorial higher-ups, none of whom still work for the company, said that I shouldn't hesitate to avoid having the door hit me on the way out. And that was that, after 12 years, I was gone. Okay, so I'm finished with that explanation. I'm not always as interested in the behind-the-scenes, real-world stuff that goes on behind the books, but I think it's good to break down the important milestones and to draw attention to when editors force the creators to take their characters down a certain path. I would rather have creators be given the creative freedom and risk the occasional dud for them to not have the power to follow through on the stories that they created. We only know and love these characters because of what the writers and artists have done with them. So, speaking of Peter David, he also wrote my absolute favorite Hulk story, Future Imperfect, published in 1992, drawn by George Perez. Hulk, at a time where he has the ability to speak, rationalize, and so on, is thrown into the future, where he finds a dystopian society that is ruled by an iron fist. Not iron fist the hero, just an expression for dictator. Anyway, this is absolutely the future. We see folks hunted down by armed forces on hovering platforms with extremely advanced weapons, and many of the folks seem to have cybernetic limbs and a cyberpunk aesthetic. The last superhero died a long, long time ago, and there's no one left to fight for the everyday people who have to give the best of their crops and land and even their wives and daughters to their ruler. Rick Jones is the one who brought Hulk from the past to this world, Rick is as old as you can imagine, telling Hulk that 90 years have passed since they would have spoke. He keeps a stockpile, or a museum, of all the hero's relics you can imagine. Thor's helmet, Wolverine's adamantium skeleton, Cap's shield, he even gets around on Professor X's iconic yellow hover chair. He tells Hulk the bleak state of affairs. Funny, ain't it? All the good guys protecting humanity from the bad guys, and humanity went and blew itself up real fine without help from anyone in armor or funny long johns. Go figure. As for what's left, dystopia's pretty much it. For the next few hundred miles, rest is wasteland or random mutant encampments, people dying by degrees. The dictator who rules over this world is simply called Maestro, Italian for master. And in this futuristic world, Maestro is an old, sadistically humorous version of the Hulk. Bruce meets Maestro, and he can't believe that this is what he's become. He wants to understand it, but he also wants to help the people that Maestro abuses. Once they come head to head, a fight ensues, but our Hulk is getting pretty clobbered as Maestro says the following. Your presence here is an indication of my foe's short-sightedness, Hulk. If they'd summoned Thor from the mist of time, he might have matched me in strength. 
or perhaps the Fantastic Four, with Richard's brilliance at the helm, could have stymied me. Or maybe the Wild Man, through his sheer heroic... Oh, that's right, you probably haven't encountered the Wild Man yet. Well, no matter. The point is, there's nothing you can do that I haven't already done. Back then, you were incredible. Now, you're just redundant. Wow. What a great passage that Peter David wrote here. I love that. And also, just real quick aside, but the world building of saying, you know, naming somebody the wild man who, oh wait, you haven't met him yet. That's really great. And it makes it feel like the Marvel Universe is even larger than what we've seen or, you know, been able to witness. Now, Maestro essentially captures the Hulk, and he has plans to rule with him, so they'll have, like, a partner of sorts. Of course, by the end of the story, our Hulk, more in tune with being an inventor than simply ruling a docile population, is able to outsmart his future self. He tricks him using Dr. Doom's old time machine, the same one that the Rebels used to bring him to the future, and the Hulk sends Maestro back to the time that the Gamma Bomb went off that created the Hulk, and there, at the center of that explosion, is the force required to kill the Maestro. Even dead, though, the Hulk will always remember one thing that Maestro told him when he tried to convince him to join in his cause. Stay here. Rule at my side. Don't you see, Bruce? We owe humans nothing. They're just takers. They take all we have and give nothing back. They spit in our face. Bruce says, That's bull. I have friends, allies, loved ones. And Maestro responds, You don't know what lies ahead for you. I do. Listen to me, Bruce. They're going to take it all away. You're going to end up with nothing and no one. Why go back to that when you can stay here and have everything. Even though he was defeated, Hulk has seen and heard the warning of what he could become, and that will stay with him. So, a couple takeaways regarding the maestro. He's malicious, evil, and violent. I know Hulk has always been explosive and dangerous, but maestro takes pleasure in crushing someone's head with his fist, and in keeping a harem of women around to serve against their will. He's malicious, and he's self-serving. Two, he seeks pleasures of the flesh above all else. Multiple times, people throw not only their best crops begging for him to take their offering, but their own sons and daughters as well. And interestingly enough, he seems somewhat into his appearance. He wears a crown sometimes, um, but also jewelry throughout. And just in general, he wears more clothing than we're used to seeing on the Hulk. In fact, at one point, he's infiltrating a rebel base where his men were flooded with acid, and he's stepping over their melted bodies, and the acid is hitting them, uh, hitting him, and he remarks to himself, Last, all this acid is ruining my best clothes. And final observation, he's actually a lot funnier than Bruce or the Hulk usually is. Now, most Marvel heroes have a few puns they throw out in the thick of fighting and whatnot, because it helps the dialogue going when they do that during a fight. But he's really not one to shy away from making jokes, or even seconds before he does something cruel and gross, telling what is straight up a joke. So, what does the maestro really tell us about the Hulk? Or rather, why is the maestro the way he is? The difference between this monster and our Bruce is just that time has passed. In Future Imperfect, we also learn that the ambient radiation from all of the nuclear warfare could have also affected his mind, but why does that make him a villain? Perhaps there's something more. 
I suppose that it's this. This Hulk doesn't have any of his friends. The friends that the Hulk, for all intents and purposes, sort of grew up with, all died a long time ago. And based on his one monologue to Hulk regarding losing it all, he may have been betrayed by them and unable to forgive them long before they died. Much in the way that Rook Jones was his tether to humanity, I think the other heroes were his tether to morality. Being a founding member of the Avengers and contemporaries with Tony Stark and Reed Richards may have done more to influence him than we can imagine. I want to keep that exact thought in mind as we move on to Planet Hulk, a story that starts with what Hulk may consider to be the greatest betrayal of his life. More on that in just a minute. I want to break down in more detail some of his different personalities. So it's not as simple as Bruce being the human and then Hulk showing up. Bruce suffers from multiple personality disorder. Being saddled with the burden of the Hulk just dialed that up to 100, but he already had it from when he was a kid. The following are some of his major personalities, or at least the ones that are most important to know about, so we won't even be able to cover them all. Firstly, Bruce Banner. And yes, I consider him to be a distinct personality. He's a genius, he's rational, he's actually pretty slow to anger most of the time because he's repressed those tendencies that he's ashamed of deep down and created other personalities to house them. These personalities, again, they existed before he became the Hulk. Next is Savage Hulk, the most common Hulk that we all know very well. He has the mental fortitude of a young child, he just wants whatever he wants and that's all there is to it. His main mode of operation is twofold. He wants to be left alone, and he wants to kill Banner. For most of his comic run, you'll find this Hulk saying some variation of, Hulk just wants to be left alone. Then there's Joe Fixit. He talks tough, he has a temperament, but he looks out for himself, just like Bruce's father did. He's also quite clever and crafty, and he's going to get what he wants. There's a um, line of dialogue that Bruce explains, I believe, to Betty about the creation of Joe Fixit that goes like this. A kid got beat half to death by his father, and while his father was sleeping it off, while his ma wasn't there, he watched a black and white movie through his black eyes, and somewhere in there was an idea of what a grown-up is, somebody who could take the pain. That's what I started as, a kid's idea of a man. So just to be clear, that is Joe Fixit, sorry, explaining his own creation in the form of Bruce Banner when he's inhabited that body. Then, in Hulk 377, published in 1990, Doc Samson, with the assistance of one of Hulk's oldest villains, the hypnotist Ringmaster, these two personalities and Banner come head to head to head, and they must work out their differences. But it's not quite so easy. All three of them, along with Doc Samson, must watch Bruce's childhood as this grotesque, toothy monster threatens them and his mother, who he barely remembers. They find the strength to see the monster for what he actually is, Bruce's father Brian, who is not a threat to them anymore. And finally, his vision of his mother counsels him and says, He needs you now. No more fighting. You've all been moving towards each other for months now. It's time. So Joe Fixit, Savage Hulk, and Bruce finally getting along results in the creation of Professor Hulk. As Doc Samson explains to Betty when she asks, Will he be normal? He says, he can't ever be normal, Betty. His cells are gamma irradiated. That would still be reflected. If we integrate the personalities as I hope to, 
what we will get is a whole Bruce Banner for the first time in years. This could be considered Banner in his ideal state. The intelligence of Banner, the strength of Hulk, and the cunning of Joe Fixit. This Hulk has the capacity to make long-term plans and execute them. He is also exceptional at staying cool under pressure. And though this may be up for debate, I believe this is the primary Hulk persona that handles business during the Planet Hulk storyline, which we'll get into next. So this story, published in 2006, written by Greg Pak and drawn by Carlo Pagaline and Aaron Lopresti. In it, Hulk goes on an incredible rampage that causes a ton of damage in a major city. And he's finally become an issue for the most powerful group in Marvel Comics to deal with, the Illuminati. Now you may have seen a version of the Illuminati appear in Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, but that group isn't quite right. In the comics, the group is primarily Iron Man of the Avengers, Black Panther, King of Wakanda, Black Bolt, the Inhuman King, Doctor Strange, Namor, the King of Atlantis, Professor X, and Mr. Fantastic or Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four. These are not only super powerful, super intelligent people, they also represent their own people, like the group that they look out for. So they try to look at threats no one else is and to make hard decisions regarding what needs to be done next, and they think they've found a cure for the Hulk problem. They trick Hulk into one of their vehicles capable of multi-planetary flight and ship him off-world. They are so confident in their decision they have a video play while he's stuck in this ship flying away, and it explains that it's the perfect planet for you, there's lots of wildlife for you to hunt, but there's no intelligent species for you to menace or harm, and you'll finally be alone. It lands on the wrong planet. Hulk is subdued in his weakened state and forced into a gladiatorial arena and slavery, and he is hell-bent on getting back to Earth and dealing with the Illuminati. So, it didn't work, this plan, it doesn't work because, as we discussed earlier, Hulk needs people around him who see his value and who show authenticity. They not only saw Hulk as nothing more than a problem to be solved, they also got rid of him under false pretenses and tricked him, so that was never going to fly. However, perhaps even in this mess, Hulk can thrive, because I believe that Hulk is most at home and comfortable when he's cast into a very intense, high-stakes, otherworldly adventure. And if I can explain that, it's that his strength invites and necessitates challenge, or else, what's the point? If the Hulk's ability to overcome ended at physical strength, or smashing, as he says, you could still tell a decent amount of stories that way, and they would be fun. But you wouldn't really get into emotional arcs, friendships, the way that challenges make a protagonist feel, what it's like to overcome a challenge that has been pushing him to the brink for an extended period of time, all this other stuff would go out the window. The creation of the Professor Hulk persona made Hulk into something more. He was already a force of nature or an unstoppable physical force. Now, he's just unstoppable. Back to the story. Hulk performs well in the arena and then jumps up to the crowd above and attempts to attack the planet's emperor who is watching. The emperor is grateful for the challenge and joins him in the fighting pit. And in his fighting armor, he's meant to be invincible, but Hulk is able to draw blood. That display of physical strength makes Hulk a figurehead of the rebellion movement. They want him to lead them whether he likes it or not. 
Hulk is sent to the Maw, a training camp of sorts where very few people survive, and he's quickly left with only seven of the strongest fighters that are there, and they're told, like it or not, they're going to be a team going forward. This is actually the first appearance of Korg, who you may remember from the Thor films. He's not the goofy, fun-loving character from the movies. He even tells his teammates that he could crush any of them if he wanted to, but he wants the team at full strength to secure his own life. He also goes toe-to-toe with the Hulk before they're on a team, and he survives. But one important aside I'll get into is that there's a reason that Korg is now considered a supporting cast member of the Thor films. So let's go back to the very first appearance of Thor in Marvel Comics, published in 1962 by Stan Lee, his brother Larry Lever, and drawn by Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby. Journey to Mystery number 83. In this comic, Mild-mannered Dr. Donald Blake finds a wooden stick in a cave while hiding from stone aliens that have landed and declared war against Earth. When he slams the stick against the ground, he becomes Thor. And of course, Thor fights off those stone aliens and sends them scurrying back to their home planet. Now, almost 50 years later, we find out more about those aliens when Korg shares this story about his visit to Earth. When we saw our first native, my brother Margus shouted, Do not slay him, he must be captured and studied. But the creature had other ideas. He chipped the very stone from our flesh, tore through the bars of our strongest cage, and smashed our mechano warbot like it was made of glass. So we fled, like fresh-cut rocklings. How could we conquer a planet of creatures such as he? We were young. If we'd stayed a bit longer, we'd have learned the truth. He was the only one of his kind. Indeed, he was a living god. So I fought the heavens themselves, and all it cost me was a few chips of stone. Why should I worry about what a mere emperor throws at me? So Korg is a bit more serious and stronger character in the comics compared to the films. And Meek, who is Korg's little buddy in Ragnarok, is a humanoid bug-like creature with one of the most tragic backstories in the whole group. His entire hive was killed off and he wants nothing more than to make the Empire pay. In fact, he takes it as his personal responsibility to make sure that Hulk stays as bloodthirsty and vicious as possible. Getting back to the story, Hulk, meanwhile, has taken to being called the Green Scar, and is the leader of a rebellion against the dictatorship that rules the planet of Sakaar. The people say he's fulfilling an ancient prophecy and bringing all the people who inhabit the planet together. To summarize, he succeeds in bringing these varied people groups together through sheer strength and will. He even lets the parasitic species called Spikes, who take over others' bodies and feeds on them, sort of like a zombie, he lets the Spikes just eat his own body instead, because he knows that he'll heal. So they do that instead of attacking others. This all comes to a head in a final battle with the Red King, or Emperor, where, as a failsafe of all sorts, The Emperor starts an apocalyptic chain reaction that will destroy the planet, and Hulk, the World Breaker, jumps into the mantle and core and he holds the very tectonic plates of the planet together to save everyone, and the narrator of the story explains as follows. He calls himself World Breaker, because he knows one day his rage will burn this planet clean, but today... Today the planet burns him, sears him to the very bone, but he will not let her go. Today the World Breaker unbreaks the world. Then, after killing the Red King and establishing peace, 
He mercifully refuses to kill those loyal to the old regime. He even makes the Red King's former right hand, Caesara, who, to be fair, switched sides after the Red King was willing to kill an entire city's population to kill Hulk, his queen. So, the former right hand of the king is now Hulk's queen. And I think perhaps he's modeling his own rule after what he had with Jarella, which is one of his very first loves, so it makes sense that he would be inspired by that. He goes to great lengths to create a peaceful life for himself and his subjects on Sakaar. His queen informs him that she's pregnant and reminds him of the good that he's done on this planet, but then a tragedy occurs. During a day of jubilee and celebration, the ship that he crash-landed in, the ship that the Illuminati tricked him into entering, explodes. Millions die, the entire kingdom is leveled, his pregnant wife dies, and only his war-bound friends are left. This leads us to a separate, but logically following story called World War Hulk. This is considered an event comic, many other runs of comics come into it, but in my opinion, if you read from the main limited series, World War Hulk, and the Hulk ongoing at the time, you'll get a pretty good scope of the story and some beautiful poetic moments too. One of my favorite issues is told from the perspective of Meek, the first friend that Hulk made on Sakaar, who is now extremely invested in his continuing rage, and Rick Jones, Hulk's first friend, period. So Hulk is determined and he's angry, angrier than ever, after stopping at the moon to beat and capture Black Bolt, the Inhuman King, he comes to New York. He plays the video the Illuminati had made for him for the world to see, demands that the Illuminati come to New York, and he orders that the whole city be evacuated. I highly recommend you read this run because it's pretty brutal watching Hulk and his warbound take out so many powerful heroes. Um, it all comes to a head though, in a gladiatorial arena that he's constructed. He's forcing the Illuminati to fight one another in a really vicious conquest, and Mr. Fantastic is fighting Iron Man, the four of them together fighting a giant bloodthirsty monster. It's exactly what Hulk and his warbound went through. Things are looking grim for anyone who isn't the Hulk. He truly seems ready to just disrupt the established order when the only hero who may stand a chance shows up. Sentry. In the past, he's been able to calm Hulk down using his powers, but this time, he shows up unleashing the power of multiple suns. Overwhelmed by Sentry, he reverts back to Bruce Banner momentarily. Well, his warbound buddy Meek is crazed. He wants to see his fearless leader Hulk and wants to see him out for blood. So he leaps to stab Bruce, saying, bring Hulk back. And Rick Jones jumps in front of the blow and takes the stab instead. Now Hulk is back and madder than before. He beats Meek to a pulp and then an explanation for the ship exploding is finally provided here near the, near the end of the World War Hulk saga. Meek says, You always forget, like when you found your queen, all you wanted was peace, but that's not who you are. You conquered Sakaar, killed the Red King. We should have slaughtered his people, but you let them live, so I watched them load an old warp core onto that shuttle. They thought it would kill you, but I knew. It would just remind you of what you were made for. The Hulk appears to be in shock after hearing this, and after a world-shattering scream, he reverts back to Bruce Banner and allows himself to be captured. So, just to be clear, in case it's not, um, in case it's not evident, this means that it was actually the Red King's former regime, the people that followed the Red King, they loaded up in 
immensely powerful bomb on that ship that they were going to take to be the center of this celebration they were having. They wanted to kill the Hulk and all of his people. It was never the Illuminati. And you can see when you read the run again more closely, there were times they tried to explain how this this couldn't be the case and Reed asked for a minute to explain. But Hulk doesn't allow it. And so he he goes through this conquest in pure ignorance instead. Bruce allows himself to be captured after this. And that ends World War Hulk with one simple prologue on a war-torn Sakaar, the Hulk's son stands up and takes life. So clearly he had enough gamma in his DNA to be able to stand and live and be grown even as his mom was annihilated by a bomb before he was born. Okay, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but I think the most important thing we can take from this ending is that Hulk has certainly evolved. His most well-known persona, the Savage Hulk, is known for having the temperament of a child. While admitting that you were inspired by a lie and admitting defeat, these are two very adult things to do. So, that Hulk was able to make that concession is a big deal in my mind. It shows growth and maturity unlike what we've seen from him in the past. This story was also grand and massive and a bit of an epic. It took place on multiple planets, showed his motivations change and grow, he settled down, and it felt earned because you could watch as he slowly found value in being a protector and leader to people who admired him for who he was authentically. And I want, to, I want you to keep in mind the stark contrast in who he was when Jarella. You know, it, there were a lot of similarities here. But my point is that the storyline with Jarella, where he becomes almost a king and settles down and protects the whole kingdom, it happens in one issue. And this, on the other hand, took many issues. I think it was like 12 just for the Planet Hulk storyline. That's over a year's worth of published comics. So that's why I say it felt earned. We got to watch him progress. So the question is, where do you even go from here? Well, Hulk had a pretty busy decade or two in the 2000s, though I don't necessarily implore you to read any of these stories. His son from Sakaar came on Earth to fight him. He blamed Hulk for leaving a war-torn world, but it was he was disgusted by his meager intelligence, and then he left. Hulk was captured by MODOK, who got busy and used his time with the Hulk to make Rick Jones into a gamma-powered giant blue monster named A-Bomb, and General Thunderbolt Ross into Red Hulk, who he has the power to become stronger by absorbing radioactive energy. And Hulk joined the Avengers later and made a deal with S.H.I.E.L.D. And this is a cool serialized run that you could jump into if it sounds interesting to you. It's called The Indestructible Hulk, written by Mark Wade and drawn by Linnell Francis Yu. It's a run that began in 2012. So the big man works for S.H.I.E.L.D. and executes field missions for them as Hulk, but asks for their support and resources to fuel his scientific endeavors as Banner. It's quite a ride, and it foreshadows something really important that will come up in my favorite modern run. Bruce and the Hulk can, at times, work together. When they do, it's a force to be reckoned with. Shortly after this, and another run, simply called Hulk, by Mark Wade again and drawn by Mark Bagley, is a stunning development in his career with S.H.I.E.L.D. An unknown assailant shoots Bruce twice, very precisely in the back of the head, causing serious brain damage. Bruce hardly recalls who he is until Iron Man performs a life-changing brain surgery using Extremis. Extremis is not really a Hulk-related concept, so I'm not going to get into it very much. However, it's a manufactured virus of sorts that can cause superhuman strength and reflexes and healing. 
Tony also uses it to perfectly, seamlessly integrate with his armor. What extremists can do, what it cannot do, is honestly kind of a foggy line at times. It not only brings back Bruce, it makes Hulk smarter than Bruce is, and Hulk has a plan. He wants to remove the curse of Gamma from everyone that is affected by it. Betty, his wife, now a Red She-Hulk, Rick Jones the A-Bomb, Red Hulk or General Ross, Abomination, She-Hulk herself, the leader, the list goes on. And he accomplishes this with one flaw. The new genius Hulk, who has been asked to be called the Green Doctor, creates an AI to help him manage his affairs. It goes rogue and tries to dispose of some of his gamma-created pals in a more permanent way. He's tracking down this AI, and at one point he says the following to himself. The anger I feel towards this Project Omega, is this how Banner felt about me? The fury and shame and the guilt of unleashing a monster into the world? We just talked about Hulk being remorseful, now he's being introspective. He's come a long way from the Hulk smash persona. However, the extremist virus doesn't last forever, and Hulk knows he's going to slowly revert back to who he was before. And it's that Bruce Banner, who once again has need to keep Hulk locked away, who is approached by a gigantic team of heroes in Civil War II. Using the mind of an inhuman boy who sees visions of the future, they have reason to believe that Bruce will lose control of the Hulk with disastrous consequences. They come to his quiet, isolated house in the wilderness, and he says, I haven't had an incident as the Hulk in over a year. And he starts to get agitated, but we'll never know if he was about to lose his temper and become the Hulk, because from the trees, an arrow dipped in a poison strong enough to shut down even the Hulk's mind flies through Banner's eye and kills him instantly. Hawkeye was responsible. And he tells the other heroes that Bruce asked him to take him out should he ever become the Hulk again. So why did Hawkeye shoot him then during their conversation? He says this when he's on trial for the murder of Bruce Banner. I can see things differently. My sight is more acute. It's why I'm such a good shot. It's why Banner chose me. He was agitated. His eyes flickered green. So, real quick, Hulk is of course resurrected down the line, that goes without saying, but what does bear being mentioned is that I really love this as a storytelling choice. There are heroes with such disparity in their abilities. You don't often think that Black Widow could take on Thor, or maybe that Bullseye, the villain, would give Doctor Strange a run for his money. I think Hawkeye and Hulk sound like one of these same mismatched characters who wouldn't really lend themselves to a story beat this important, but that's the magic of Marvel, where what happens is truly only limited to the imagination of the creator, so what can the author or the artist dream up? Maybe it's Clint Barton in a tree, hundreds of yards away, shooting an adamantium arrow coated in poison through the eye of Bruce Banner as it flickers green just enough where only he can see it. That's what I love about Marvel. Now to get back to it, Hulk has spent time dead, and he's back. With that in mind, I want to get to a story that is not only a highlight of the modern era, I think it defines it. And I don't just mean Hulk comics, I mean what comic books can do as an art form. To take characters that feel larger than life to us, because we've known them longer than we've known a lot of our dearest friends, and then to flip them on their head in new and interesting ways. This run is called Immortal Hulk. Written by Al Ewing and drawn by Joe Bennett, 
It began in 2018 and lasted almost five years. Before getting into the plot of this comic, what happens in it, I want to potentially sell you on it. This goes back to the origins of what Hulk was at the start, a grotesque monster that emerged at night. This Hulk is scary right off the bat. The threat he presents to others feels real and visceral. When you see him on the page, you feel unnerved because of the way he's illustrated. He also feels like a monster or wild animal because you aren't sure what he's going to do or how he'll react to the people around him. Some of the first comics in this 50-issue run are the highlights. Imagine the Hulk confronting a man who's almost a ghost, a floating, gamma-radiating skeleton inhabiting a cave next to a graveyard. Anyone grieving comes to see their loved ones, but this man would kill them because he couldn't risk being found out. A chain of grief that doesn't stop. There's something poetic about that. The ghost, he begs for mercy and explains he was just so afraid of dying that everything spiraled out of control. This Hulk rips his arms and legs off and buries him beneath the mountain itself. By the time the spirit wakes up, he's begging the void itself to end his life. Death is better are the last words we hear from him. And this is issue number two. Then we start to learn about the very important Hulk lore this run establishes. Firstly, we get to meet a brand new persona or personality uh, of the Hulk. One that Hulk, Bruce, and Joe have kept chained inside for many years. So the Hulk comes to blows with Thor due to this new personality, and Thor is in shock. He, he's stronger than he was, vastly so. He sees the naked souls of men, smells the lies in our hearts, hidden even from ourselves, Thor explains to Captain America. You live in the mortal world, Steve Rogers, of science and law, of what you can perceive. But I live in a world of legend and symbols, the world of gods. I am suggesting, Captain, that in its rage, its pain, in the shadow of Armageddon, your mortal world may have produced something very close to a god, or a devil, perhaps. Meet Devil Hulk. So he comes out at night, and if Bruce dies, Hulk will resurrect him when the moon rises. He's violent, he's not afraid to permanently cripple the people in his way, and he has big plans to completely shake up the political and economic system that the Earth employs. The way things are cannot be considered sustainable, and he thinks the puny humans have ruined it all. His healing factor is indescribable. At one point, with the full assistance of the entire Avengers roster, he is subdued and handed over to a secret team called Gamma Base. This is a subset of S.H.I.E.L.D. meant to study and create weapons using this new Hulk. His body is sliced into pieces in this subdued state, and each piece is put into a jar floating in liquid. And I mean literally, Hulk's foot in one jar, his head floating upside down in another, his hand in another still, but the Hulk is alive and retains autonomy over each of them. As if that's not gruesome enough, imagine now, to get out, he waits for the director, of this base to be close, observing and taunting his captured prey. Then Hulk snaps his fingers in one of the jars. They all shatter, and as the Hulk starts to heal instantly, all his body parts merging together, he effectively absorbs the Gamma Base director into his own skin and very being before escaping. And it is very nasty, and I believe when it came out, I saw quite a few articles on that scene in the comic book sphere of the internet. Anyway, the final major trait that we learn about the Devil Hulk persona 
is he's protective of Bruce. He won't let anyone hurt Bruce, and he wants to punish the world that has caused Bruce so much pain. The Immortal Hulk run is not only special, but unforgettable because of its range. It does take itself pretty seriously, it can be scary and intense oftentimes, but we also get to see Hulk take on secret government agencies, international business corporations, Godzilla-style monsters, and most importantly, his arch-nemesis, the Leader, as he slowly reveals how powerful he's become by embracing the one below all that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. The finale focuses on the one below all. When Hulk's altars finally get to him, they demand to know why. Especially Savage Hulk and his childlike mind, he can't fathom the injustice of bearing this curse forever and always causing suffering to the people around him. The one below all tells him who he is, but they still demand to know why. The one below all shows his true face. Much like the multifaceted personality of the Hulk, the one shows that he is actually the one above all. He is God. So basically, the one below all is the one above all's Hulk. It's his evil, corrupted, and grotesque side. He tells Savage Hulk, Why are you as you are? I ask of you, what is the Hulk? What have you become? With these hands I built, with other hands I break. I break to build anew. Have you my strength? Have you an arm like mine? Would you build or break? You are my creation. I made you the counterweight. To ask of you. Are you Gebura or Glachukab? And what of Chased? What of Mercy? What will you become? For the left hand is my strength. I think the point of this is that you can interpret it as you please. I think that's the point for the reader. And for Hulk, he explains, I build things and I break them too. I have free will. You are an extension of me. You have to do the same. That's how I take it. Now, the ending of the passage has some words you may not know. Gebura is a term from the field of Jewish mysticism. It's Hebrew. It alludes to the strength or the essence of judgment. Chesed, on the other hand, is love or kindness, and Golakab can be seen as chaos and destruction. The one above all is asking Hulk where these fall in his view. What of them? Which is he? It's this Hulk coming to peace with these impossibly difficult questions which he doesn't even understand are being asked of him. He doesn't understand that their questions being asked of him. He's just waiting for an answer. But is this Hulk that willingly leaves? And the fact that he was able to leave when speaking to the one above all without trying to fight him, I think that shows maybe he does actually understand the answer. Go and be what you will. Hulk leaves the place below all, and Banner is finally seemingly in control. The one below all, the leader, and even the devil Hulk are dealt with for now. And this leads me to the final personal theory that I'll share today. I believe the devil Hulk is the absolute earliest stage of the personality that will become the maestro. He already believes he's in a different category than puny humans. He wants to look out for Bruce and give him the best life he can. And he is articulate and occasionally has a sour sense of humor. It's years upon years in the future, but I think you don't get to future imperfect. You don't get to a dystopia ruled by an ancient Hulk without first getting Devil Hulk. In the Immortal Hulk storyline, someone is able to infiltrate Bruce's very mind and seemingly kills the Devil Hulk, though we can't really say that with 100% certainty. But if he did, 
if the person who went into the mind of Bruce and killed Devil Hulk, if he did that successfully, then the events of a mortal Hulk might be exactly what causes our 616 Bruce to go on a different path than the maestro. Maybe that's the fine line of delineation that had to occur. Although, now that it's happened, we'll never truly know unless we learn more and more about how the maestro came to be, but that's an alternate reality. So that would have to take place outside of the 616 universe. So that about wraps up Immortal Hulk. Finally, we get to Donny Cates and Ryan Otley's run. If anything, I think it proves how different Hulk can be compared to that recent Immortal Hulk run. Bruce uses magic to turn Hulk into what is functionally a starship. He is inside the captain's chair. A articulate, intelligent Hulk is the thing he's controlling from inside. And then in the engine room exists Savage Hulk, where he throws increasingly more opponents and enemies at him, so that way he can fuel their anger and make the Hulk he's controlling stronger. It's a very bizarre run, but it's drawn in a very fun way, and it's pretty cool. So... If you wanted to check that out, then I would recommend it. Donny Cates has done some amazing things. We've talked a lot about his stories on the show. There's a current ongoing I'm going to skip speaking on for now because I think it's about time to wrap up, and that one's just a bit too new for us to be able to make any big conclusions out of it. So to wrap up, I'm going to start by reading a quotation that comes from Immortal Hulk 13. This is Alpha Flight's Puck explaining Gamma to the Absorbing Man. There's an idea in science called the theory of everything. The hypothetical master theory, a coherent, unified framework of physics that includes, explains, and predicts all phenomena. Science hasn't quite found one yet. The reason being, it's science. It's only half the picture. There is science, but there is also magic, and gamma is a little bit of both. Gamma radiation is science. It's measurable, predictable. It has rules, until it doesn't until it makes hulks and sasquatches and leaders, until it's magic. So, I didn't plan on getting into this subject on an episode about the Hulk, but after such a long hiatus, it seems natural. The real big picture reason that I began working on this podcast is because I'm afraid the world is running out of magic, or the unknown. I have always had such an affinity for the mysterious, When I was a kid, I was obsessed with paranormal activity, mythical creatures, and even some conspiracy theories. As you grow up, you absolutely lose sight of a lot of that stuff. Humans like to look for patterns, and to find patterns that we have agency in reacting to. It's natural. And the gene pool over all these years has even favored the people who can do that more efficiently. But with that obsession, we have categorized, documented, and researched everything we can. The blank edges of the map and periodic table are being filled in. And I don't think that we've run out of mysteries in the world and beyond it. There's plenty that we don't know. But do we lose sight of it? Of the mystery specifically? Yes, we do. Marvel Comics makes me feel like I live in a world that still has magic in it. This show was meant to capture that feeling for myself and others. The Hulk is a being that, while having been written about, or perhaps researched in depth, there's still so much mystery to. His origins are sometimes a mess and his strength is incalculable. And I hope that those traits and this explanation of Gamma can help you understand my point. Because if you see this fictional universe as completely and cohesively as I do, I think you'll realize there's still magic left to wonder about in our world too. And if you're anything like me, 
you believe it's worth looking for. Well, that's going to do it for episode number eight on The Incredible Hulk. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm sorry that it's been so, so long since the last show. I'm not going to pretend that it was some long-term ongoing project. This was obviously an unintentional hiatus that went on for a really long time. But I think it's because I froze up trying to make it perfect and live up to my own expectations of what it could be when I was receiving such positive feedback from people all along that they were enjoying it. So I'm just going to focus on that and thank everybody once again who left a positive review or emailed me because it was extremely helpful to to remind me that people enjoyed what we're doing and what I'm trying to accomplish with, with this podcast and this show. So thank you again. I do want to remind you that there is a Twitter to the show, so if you want to reach out and ask any questions or interact in any way or just give your opinion on any of the stories or things that we talked about, the Twitter for the show is Marvel A number two Z. And then the same goes for the email. You're welcome to email me if you have suggestions or general ideas for what you might like to see happen with the show. Uh, the email is Marvel A number two Z podcast at gmail.com. Again, the email is Marvel A number two Z podcast at gmail.com. So I know I've already said it, but thank you so much for listening. I'm really excited to get back into it. And by the time that I most recently began writing and studying um, for this episode, it started to come really naturally. So that makes me really excited to stay working. Again, if you have any suggestions, not just for character suggestions, which I'm happy to take, uh, but for things you might like to see or ways that we can interact and grow community, I'm happy to hear it. The next episode that I want to do, and the plan for the next episode, is going to be a show on the Illuminati. They're a really interesting group of people. They appeared kind of in Multiverse of Madness, but that wasn't quite right like I mentioned in today's episode. So I would love to clear up any misconceptions and get into how that group has changed over the years, but also all the things they've done, what their mission is, and what some of their finest moments have been. And on the flip side, some of the moments that were not the finest and some of the things they're responsible for, like shipping the Hulk into space. Anyway, um, I hope that you liked this episode. It took me a while, obviously, even when I was actively working on it. It took quite a bit of research and um, thinking and analysis. I hope that that shows. So if you have any feedback at all, just know that I would be very happy to hear it if you want to reach out on Twitter or over email. I really am curious to hear what people think after this show being gone for so long. I think I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Everyone who reached out, left reviews, anything like that, it's appreciated. And if you have anything else you'd like to say about the show, I do encourage you, of course, to leave reviews so that hopefully other people find it and we grow the community even more. So until next time, this is James Bianco, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again. Have a good one.